This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Um, today, I'm going to do an episode just kind of wrapping up. I, we've done several episodes on narcissism, and I wanted to kind of put in some of the things that we didn't get to in the episodes. If you haven't listened to those ones, go back and listen um, to those episodes. There's a lot of great information, but we were on a time schedule, so we didn't get time to put everything that we could have into those episodes. So I'm actually going to do this episode kind of wrapping up everything um, that maybe we missed or didn't get a chance to cover in the previous episodes. And then I've also had questions from people about other personality disorders. And are the personality disorders like, is narcissism only narcissism, right? And the answer is no, there's not necessarily clean cut like edges around the personality disorders. And so there can be some blending of some of the personality disorders. So I'm also going to do another episode, just kind of a overview of the personality disorders. And we'll be covering borderline personality disorder, narcissism, and then the antisocial personality disorder. So we'll kind of look at those three. So let's get started into some of what we missed on the episodes of narcissism. So in both of the episodes, if you've listened to them, you will recall that the guest spoke from the perspective as the narcissist being a male. So this has led to the question, and people have asked me, can females also be a narcissist? And the answer is yes. So roughly 6% of the general population has narcissistic personality disorder. Now research has shown over the years that it is more prevalent in men than it is with women. So men, it occurs about 7.7% versus 4.8% for females. So in the book, The Narcissist Next Door, by Jeffrey Kluger, he explores the idea that as a society, we are still predominantly patriarchal. And this may be part of the reason why we see narcissism showing up more with men than we do with women. So in patriarchal societies, we value men over women. Ideas such as the man is the head of the house and therefore he's making all the decisions and everything kind of has to be run through him. This may contribute to a higher number of male narcissists. In some communities, So in some religious communities, not all religious communities, I don't want those of you who are religious to get upset about this. I'm just saying in some religious communities that are largely still patriarchal, they're going to have a higher number of males with narcissistic traits. Now, this may not be full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, but they've got several of the traits and the teachings and the culture and kind of the structure of that community or whatever, that institution can reinforce or even praise those traits in men. Now for women who are in those communities and those cultures and they are narcissistic or they have a lot of narcissistic traits, they will find ways to express their narcissism. It's not like that's just not going to happen in those communities for women, but oftentimes they will do it in different ways than men do it, right? Because a woman in a patriarchal structure isn't going to be recognized or accepted the way that a man is for this very same traits. So hopefully that makes sense. So in some ways, uh, research shows that men and women express narcissism the same. There's common traits among the genders. And then there's also some traits of narcissism that the genders express differently. So both are defined in both genders Narcissism is defined as people who have a grandiose idea of themselves, which actually masks their low self-esteem. So the, the outward expression is an inflated version of themselves, right? So on the outside, they look great. They, they look perfect. They may be very dynamic and look like they have everything together. And we'll talk about this in the next episode, some of the underneath, like what's actually going on. But they're going to present an inflated version of themselves outward, which they believe is better than anyone around them, and they'll often treat others with contempt. Now, this contempt may be subtle, or it may be quite overt. It may be very obvious and big, depending on the situation and what the narcissist feels they can get away with. So both genders of narcissists are completely self-interested, and they're only going to do something if they see that it will benefit them. So let me give an example. Like, 
because sometimes it may, again, I think look a little bit differently for the gender. So women may, especially moms, right? Women who are mothers, it's going to look like they do a lot to benefit their kids. So one of the examples I'll use when I'm talking to women who maybe were raised by a narcissistic mother, we'll talk about how maybe the mom was always running the kids everywhere, right? Kids were involved in multiple sports, dance, gymnastics, right? The kids were kind of overscheduled, but mom was getting something out of that. Even though she may complain kind of on the surface to maybe friends or stuff about how she's always running the kids everywhere and she's so busy. Part of that is coming out as a martyr, right? Like look at everything I'm doing for everybody else and I'm having to suffer when in actuality they're really getting a lot of hits out of um, having their kids involved in everything and they're actually pretty involved. So they may be talking to the coach or they may be talking to the dance teacher and they're really trying to help their child, right? Sometimes even more than the child is interested. So you may see a child get burned out, right? They're over scheduled, they're over involved in things. And the child may say like, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's really not an option, right? And that's where we start to see that this isn't about the child. The child's not the one pushing their success or their involvement in certain things. It's actually the mom who needs them to do this so so that she's looking better. So research indicates that one of the differences between males and females is that often for men, the narcissism is much more about power and control. Whereas for women, it's much more about them looking good. Now, if you know much about like a patriarchal structure, right, that really falls in line with some of the, some of the indications of a patriarchal structure, right? Like women may not openly be able to have power and control. And so they may not seek that, right? They're going to seek that in a much more subtle or covert way, right? So there's this, I don't really have a lot of power and control when actually the female does have a lot of power and control, but it's not as obvious as how men can, can use and go after power and control. So typically narcissists are nonviolent, However, we're going to talk about in a minute how that may look or how that may be different depending on the role that you play in the narcissist's life. But typically they're they're nonviolent. They can be very good at controlling their emotions. Now, part of this is because narcissists aren't really in tune or in touch with their emotions or they're very um, what I call like they're very psychologically boundaried around their emotions, right? So they don't let those emotions out very much. They may not even be aware of what the emotions are because they've been disconnected from that for so long. Now it's hard to know kind of what's going on in the mind and the body of a narcissist. There's some speculation, right? That narcissists actually do have emotions, but they tend to not be driven by them, right? They're so boundaried or they're so kind of locked away that they aren't feeling those emotions and so the emotions aren't able to direct and to guide or to set a boundary like they are for most of the general population. But they are very good, right, at using emotions and often using other people's emotions to manipulate for what they want. And so they can make, you know, they can be very calm, very cool, Uh, very collected, while the other person is getting more and more hysterical or more and more emotional. And the more emotional or over-emotional, maybe over-sensitive that the other person gets, the more calm and collected the narcissist gets, right? Because in that situation, who has the power, right? The one who's making another one kind of look crazy. And the more that partner escalates or the more that child escalates, that adult child it would be, the calmer the narcissist actually gets because there's this reinforcing of the power and control that they have. So male narcissists often dominate others by manipulating or game playing, whereas females rely much more on their charm, um, sometimes their sexuality, their image, or being a martyr, right? So they, they are more likely to kind of pout Um, in order to get you to respond and in order to manipulate you, right? They may cry, they may pout, they might guilt you. And that's how they get their power instead of just domination like a male would. So if we're talking for a minute, let's talk about, I, I will often summarize when I'm working with somebody who has a narcissist in their life, I'll talk about that there's often three categories 
for people in the life of a narcissist, right? So initially, let's take it, for example, like that you're getting in an adult romantic relationship with a narcissist. So initially, you're kind of in this category of you are the person that the narcissist wants to impress, right? And they can do this very well and they'll pull out that, you know, there's no stopping what they will do in order to impress those in, sometimes this category is called the others, right? And really what that means is you are in this category of you're out in my world and I need to impress you and I need to make you think highly of me and I need you to think that I'm perfect. So there's that category, right? Now, sometimes I think it was in the episode with M. Capito, she talked about kind of this whiplash that happens shortly after kind of a marriage or something like that, where all of a sudden the partner's saying, what just happened, right? Well, what happened is you moved categories, right? So First, you were in the category of somebody that they needed to impress. And now all of a sudden you're in the category of you are now an extension of me as the narcissist and I need you to help me look good, right? So this is often the category that children are in. Children of narcissists are in the category of I need you to make me look good, right? So oftentimes the kids are dressed well, like I said, they're Maybe there's an overemphasis on getting good grades, on excelling. Um, We'll talk a little bit about some of the categories that children can fall into because not all of the kids, you know, will, will always do well. But when children are young, it's easy for a parent to kind of dominate and control them, right? And and the kid will go along because they're dependent. They're not able to do much on their own. They they don't know differently, right? What's happening in their family is very normal to them because they don't know anything different. And so oftentimes those kids, you know, they'll, the parent will pick their clothes, right? They'll pick their haircut. They, they pick all of these things and they can be dressed to the nines, right? And look very good. But the child isn't necessarily picking any of that or knowing that they even would have a choice. So in this category now of you are now an extension of the narcissist, right? So the narcissist has this very fragile ego in which they need other people to think very highly of them and really nothing less than perfect is acceptable, right? So I need people, if I'm a narcissist, I need people to think that I'm perfect. And when I when I move people into the category of you are now an extension of me, people also need to think that you're perfect, right? So the spouse now has that expectation placed on them that they have to be perfect and the children have to be perfect, right? Because this is all part of maintaining this narcissistic image of perfection and flawlessness. And then there's the third category, right? Where, um, and this is kind of the category that we talked about with M. Capito, where maybe the person, the spouse, maybe a teenage child or maybe an adult child is starting to recognize or at least protest this relationship, right? Of like, I don't want to be there for you. I don't want to have to make you look good because in doing that, like I don't get to be my own individual, right? I don't get to be my own person. I don't get to make mistakes. I don't get to appear flawless. And that's exhausting, right? So that child who will be somewhat older, right? It's not a young child or the spouse starts to say, I I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. And maybe they go into therapy, right? Maybe they start reading some things about what's happening and they start to become aware of the narcissistic abuse that's been taking place in the relationship. And they're saying, I, I, I don't want to do this, right? So they're on to the narcissist, right? They're on to the fact that this person actually isn't perfect. And this life that we've been maintaining is not perfect. And I don't want to do it anymore, right? So they now become the threat to the narcissist So in some ways, right, I mean, some ways it can be good if you're kind of like if the narcissist just sees you and is like, you're dead to me. But oftentimes, like we've talked about in the previous episodes, that's going to cycle, right? So there will be a discard in which you're dead to me and I don't want anything to do with you. But behind your back, right, I may be demeaning you. I'm going to be talking negatively about you. I'm going to be talking because the narcissist has to regain this. Like, it's not about me. Like the fact that my spouse wants a divorce or the fact that my teenager or my adult child doesn't want anything to do with me, right? They have to explain to people why that's happening in this perfect person's life, right? So it's got to be about the the other person. And so they may even say to other people that the spouse is narcissistic, 
right? I've had that happen before where I'm getting, I, as a therapist, the spouse is coming into me and maybe the, the person that they're divorcing, the husband may call me and say, Hey, you need to be aware that this person is highly narcissistic and that's what's going on. And I've, I've been the victim of this. I've just been having to deal with this. It's been so difficult, yada, yada. Right. And, and so they're going to do what they can to kind of ruin your reputation so that you can't ruin theirs. And so that's a difficult, right? Those categories, once you're in the life of a narcissist, whether that's in the category where they view you as an extension of themselves, or they've got to combat the fact that you're not in a relationship with them, it becomes pretty abusive and destructive for the person in those two categories, right? But they can't go back to that other category where the narcissist wants to impress them, right? So this is where sometimes I'll talk about how we really need to improve overall the emotional IQ of the general population, right? Or the social intelligence of the general population so that we can spot this and kind of have an idea of what's actually happening, right? Because with people with personality disorders, um, especially like the narcissist and the antisocial personality disorder, they're very good at playing people and they're very good at manipulating them. And so we can often be drawn into that if we're in the other category and we simply don't have a sense of actually what's at play and what's happening, or we're on the receiving end of the abuse. So I wanna talk for a minute about the signs of a narcissistic parent. A narcissistic parent can be defined as someone who lives through, is possessive of, and or engages in marginalizing competition with the offspring. So typically the narcissistic parent perceives the independence of a child, and this includes the adult child, as a threat, and often will coerce their children to exist in the parent's shadow with unreasonable expectations. So in a narcissistic parenting relationship, the child is rarely loved for just being himself or herself. So numerous studies have been conducted on the subject of narcissistic parenting and the impact on the children that come from those relationships. So I want to take a minute. I think it's important to distinguish some differences here. So many parents, right, are proud of their children and they want to show them off and they want to show pictures and they just think their children are great, right? And that's, I think that's pretty normal for most parents, right? We, I mean, we don't want a parent to not be impressed with their child, right? We don't want the parent to not think that their child is great because that's a different type of abuse. And often parents can be firm and have to like correct behavior and let the child know that that's not okay and have boundaries, right? And so most parents, we want to have this desire for their children to make them proud, right? There's kind of this like, okay, things are going well and we can be proud of our child. Those things are somewhat normal in parenting and they don't fall along the continuum of pathological narcissism or nar narcissistic parenting. So what distinguishes the narcissistic parent is this pervasive tendency to kind of deny the children, even as an adult, a sense of independence and a sense of selfhood, right? That this child gets to be themselves instead of just serving the selfish needs and the low self-esteem of the narcissistic parent. So here are some checklists, 10 items of a narcissistic parent. And this comes from a Psychology Today article by Preston Nee. The first one he talks about is that the narcissistic parent will use or live through a child. The second characteristic is this marginalization. So some narcissistic parents are threatened by their child's uh, potential, their promise, their success. On one hand, this is making the narcissistic parent look good, right? The child's success, the child's um, potential, their promise, all of their things that they're accomplishing, right? On the one hand, this is feeding the ego of the narcissistic parent. On the other hand, it kind of hits or like pricks the fragile self-esteem of the parent, right? And so there can be this, like, I'm so proud of you. You have to do well. And there can also be these snide comments or remarks when the child is doing well, right? Coming from this fragile ego and this perceived competition from the child. So they may also, a narcissistic parent may praise and insult you, 
in one sentence, right? Or in any given day, right? There may be praise coming or then there may be this insult and bringing you down. The common thread though, is that there's something wrong with you, right? When everything goes wrong or when anything goes wrong, it's on you. It couldn't be on the parent. While the child can be successful and do things well, um, the narcissistic parent also needs them to know that they're never going to be good enough, right? Because if they're good enough, they might actually leave the narcissistic parent. And so there's also going to be this lowering of of confidence that happens in order for the parent to get their own boost, right? So they'll point out, maybe you play a sport and you do really well, or you play an instrument and you do really well, right? But you made one mistake and the parent's gonna make sure that you knew that you made a mistake. The third trait is this grandiosity and superiority. So, you know, narcissistic parents have a falsely inflated self-image about who they are and what they do. And so often individuals around the narcissist, like I said, are treated with contempt or are treated as being less than, or they're just tools to be used for the narcissist's personal gain. So some children of narcissistic parents are objectified in the same manner. So some children may be kind of put in this less than, other children may be put in the better than. You know, so there, there may also be, I've seen this, I've encountered this with children of narcissists where they themselves as an individual really didn't have a lot of confidence. They didn't really see themselves as anything great, but as the family, right, we were better than everybody else. So there's this inflation of the family name or the family unit, but there's this tearing down of the individuals within the family. That leads into the fourth trait, which is this superficial image Right? So this is closely related to the grandiosity where they love to show how special or how unique or how perfect they are. So they enjoy kind of publicly parading what they consider their superior traits. Um, it, it may be material possessions. It may be physical appearance. It may be projects that they do, accomplishments, contact in high places, kind of this trophy spouse right, or trophy children, trophy family. So they go out of their way to kind of seek this attention and flattery and everybody kind of has to be recruited to do that. The fifth trait is this manipulation, right? Narcissists are good at manipulation. So some of the common maybe examples, right? Maybe the guilt trip, like I've done everything for you and you're so ungrateful, right? Well, I mean, it's a parent's job to do things for their kids, right? Like that, that is our responsibility when we become a parent. And so we shouldn't make our children feel guilty or feel bad that I did that, right? Because I chose to be a parent. Um, There may be blaming, right? It's your fault that I'm not happy. So I see this sometimes, particularly with women. It can come up with dads too. But one of the ways I see it with women, right? I think in our society uh, where women are kind of in this one down position, right? We see men as superior to women still. And so particularly for moms, right, it can be this, it can be very subtle, right? Something like, I'm just so sad that you didn't get straight A's, right? And, and it's this enmeshment of the emotions, right? That you're responsible for how I feel. You know, I mean, sometimes also the parent can hijack the child's success, right? So the child does something successful and the parent hijacks that and makes them all about them, right? That you were able to do this because of all of my sacrifices and all that I've done and that the parent is kind of relishing the success and kind of hijacking that so the kid doesn't really feel the ownership or the accomplishment themselves. Also kind of shaming. So this might sound like your poor performance is an embarrassment to our family, Right? And it's kind of this, like, we do better than this. We know better than this. We are not doing those things. That's you and you're bringing shame to the family. Also negative comparison. Why can't you be as good as your brother? Or why can't you, you know, this is what your sister did and you never do things like that for me. Also, there can be this unreasonable pressure where, you know, you have to perform your best to make me good. Several of my kids have played sports. Um, three of them played soccer and then one played, my oldest played softball. And so I've been on the sidelines of a lot of games, right? And kind of just been an observer. And I don't, like if I'm, if I'm on the sideline, like I don't say much. I don't, I mean, there are times I'll like cheer or be like, yes, something like that. But for the most part, right? I know that my role is I'm a spectator. I'm not playing the game. So it doesn't 
help the players on the field for me to sit on the sideline and tell them what to do or what they should have done, right? But you'll see this oftentimes if your kids are involved in sports, and I'm guessing it's also maybe similar with dance or instruments or things like that, right? This That you're aware that like some parent is taking this way too personal, right? As if this has to do with them. So there's this unreasonable pressure that is a way of manipulating the person, right? And if you can't be perfect all the time at everything you do, then you fail. Uh, There can also be a manipulative reward and punishment, right? So it's kind of this, I think there was a quote in the movie, uh, The Dead Poet Society with the main character, the main boy at that boy's school who ended up at the, towards the end of the show. He um, died by suicide, right? And I hope I'm not ruining that for anybody Spoiler alert, I guess I should have said. However, it is like out of the 80s or 90s, so you should have seen that movie, right? Where the father's talking to the son and he's telling him like, you had so many opportunities that I didn't have. And so you're going to be a doctor. And once you've accomplished that, then you can choose what you're going to do. Until then, it's my choice. So there can be this manipulative reward and punishment. You need to major in college in what I decide that you should do or I will cut off financial support. Um, There can also be this emotional coercion, you know, that you're not a good child, you're not a good son, you're not a good daughter unless you measure up to my expectations. So a common theme running through that fifth category of how, uh, of a trait of a narcissistic parent, right, is that there's this form of manipulation and love is given as a conditional reward, right? Rather than this natural expression of, I I just love my child and there's going to be ups and downs and my love doesn't necessarily go up and down. My love is consistent. So the sixth category of, or the sixth trait of a narcissistic parent is this inflexibleness and this touchiness, right? So certain narcissistic parents are highly rigid when it comes to the expectations of their children and they regulate their children with minor details and become upset when there's any deviation, right? Where most parents have to have kind of this wiggle room, right? Like if you're in the ballpark, that's great. And with narcissistic parents, they can become extremely rigid in that. Some narcissistic parents are also very touchy and easily triggered, right? Reasons for irritation can vary greatly. So it can be maybe the child's not paying attention and they're not doing what the parent says to perceived faults or shortcomings. And so it's kind of that, like the child would have the situation or they would have the perception of, I don't really know, like one time I did this and nothing happened. And the next time I did that, like, whoo, all hell broke loose, right? So one reason for the parent's inflexibility or touchiness is that focus on controlling the child. And so it's kind of creating this. I don't know that they're doing it consciously, right? We don't really know what what's totally in the mind of a narcissistic parent. But I don't know that they're doing it consciously, but it's this, they're creating this confusion or this unpredictability, right? Where the child isn't sure what's going to set the parent off or what's going to be okay. And that's a way of maintaining control with somebody, right? Like I always have to kind of check in with you or watch you and adjust because I don't really know what's the difference between doing it right and doing it wrong. So the seventh trait of a narcissistic parent is this lack of empathy. So one of the most common manifestations of a narcissistic father or mother is the inability to be mindful of the child's own thoughts and feelings and to validate those things as real and important. And instead, it's only what the parent thinks and feels that matters. So children who live under this type of parental influence over time may respond with you know, the survival instincts. They might fight back to stand up for themselves. They might flee and just get away from the parent. Some just kind of begin to freeze and they substitute their real self, right, which has never been validated with this false persona. And so they kind of go into this role that they play instead of actually developing into their own authentic person. Um, and they may, in doing that, right, they may adopt traits of the narcissist themselves and their reality, their view of the world is skewed. Oftentimes there's a dependency or a codependency that exists with their parents, right? So they, they can expect their child to take care of them for the rest of their life. And they may even say that to the child, like when I get old, it's your responsibility to take care of me. 
So this type of dependency can be emotional and physical. It can also be financial, right? Sometimes I'll work with clients who at a very young age had to start working and turning the money over to the parent and giving that to the parent to kind of help take care of the parent, right? And the parent's building this, like, I can be dependent on you and you have to take care of me. You know, there's nothing wrong with taking care of older parents and that can be an admirable trait, but the narcissistic parent is typically manipulating this as a way to get that control and they're starting to do it way before there's a need for them to be taken care of. The eighth trait is jealousy and possessiveness. So a narcissistic mother or father often hopes that the child will permanently dwell under the parent's influence. So any sign that the child is growing mature and maybe more independent, that's going to have to be corrected, right? So that can also be like when the child is getting married, right? It's going to be harder to control this in-law who's married into the family and hasn't had to live under these rules and hasn't had to kind of comply with the parents' needs. And and they may not see that as normal, right? That person marrying into the family may be like, this is crazy. And they may start to have some influence over that child of the narcissist, right? And they may, may be able to see some things or to encourage independence from the family. And so that's going to be seen as a threat. And they may talk down to that in-law or talk bad about that in-law and try to, again, damage their reputation in order to protect the narcissist. The 10th trait of a narcissistic parent is neglect. So in some situations, a parent may elevate a child. And we'll talk about that in a minute, that some children fall into this role of they are the golden child. But for other children, right, they may be the invisible child. And so there's a lot of neglect that happens for that child. So those are some of the traits of a narcissistic parent, right? I want to talk just a little bit about if the narcissistic parent is a mother, because we didn't really talk about that from a female perspective. So for all of us, right, boys and girls, our mothers are our first love. She is our introduction to life. You know, we spend time growing within her. And so she is our introduction to life and to ourselves, right? Once we're born, she is our lifeline to security. And so I often will say, you know, when we are born, we are not born with a sense of self. So we have to learn about ourselves and about our world through our interactions with our caretakers, right? And if mom is the primary caretaker, a lot of that is being influenced by mom. So we naturally need, right? We need her physical and emotional sustenance. We need her touch. We need her gaze. We need her smile and her protection, right? Think of this young infant, right? Or even the toddler that's, you know, one, two years old. We need that interaction with mom. There's a sense of safety and security that's being developed in those things, you know, that young children do with that primary caretaker. And so we need also her empathetic reflection of our feelings, our wants, and our needs, right? So what's this going to look like in a healthy situation, right? The the child's crying, the child's having a rough day, right? Maybe they got shots, maybe they're teething. And the parent, while this can be a hard day, right, to get through, but the parent knows that something's not okay. And there's this empathy, like, oh, I know that that really hurts or oh my gosh, you're just having a hard day, right? So there's some empathy going to the child about what's happening for them. Through those exchanges, right, she informs us of who we are and will reflect our value to us. Now, the narcissistic mother who cannot empathize, right, who, who takes it personal that the baby's having a hard day, right, or takes it personal that the toddler won't take a nap, she's going to damage her child's healthy psychological development because she sees in the child only a reflection of herself, right? So if the child's having a hard day, that may be a reflection of her imperfection. And again, when we talked about like the narcissist does not have this tolerance for anything that would make them perceive themselves as less than perfect. Also, there's no healthy boundary separating the mother from her child, right? So again, this looks like this enmeshment that starts to happen and who you are is who I am. So the symptoms of narcissism may vary in intensity, but they really compromise a parent's inability to parent in a healthy way. So let's talk for a minute about daughters of narcissistic mothers. So daughters usually spend more time with mom simply because of gender stuff, right? So 
oftentimes in a lot of families, I hear this like dad and the boys went outside and worked in the yard and mom and the girl stayed in the house and did work, right? So there can just be some of those gender roles that tend to put the daughter more with the mom, right? Now this, I would say for young boys, um, they're around mom a lot too. But when they start to reach a certain age, right, our society kind of says it's time for the little boy to leave mom and to become him his own self and to kind of have some independence from mom. So due to this lack of boundary, you know, mom often sees her daughter as both an extension of her ego and as a threat, right? So mom may need daughter to be amazingly beautiful, right? Mom may need daughter and praise daughter for being very attractive, having a great body, right? But at the same time, as her body's aging and her body's getting old and, you know, she's had a couple of kids and so it's not looking the same as this teenage daughter, right? She's also perceiving this as a threat. And so often they will guide the daughter both through praise and criticism, right? As And, and so it's getting in the way of this daughter developing her own sense of self and instead mom's guiding her to become this version of her idealized self, right? The mom's idealized self. So they can also project onto their daughters, their unwanted aspects of themselves. Like maybe, you know, on some level, mom recognizes how selfish she's being, but that's going to be projected on the daughter about how selfish the daughter is or how selfish that her needs are. Um, and oftentimes moms, narcissistic moms, they do prefer their sons. However, they're, they're going to be damaging to their sons in, in a different way, right? So it's not like they prefer their sons and they're a good and healthy parent to their son. So narcissistic abuse, you know, includes shame and control, which will undermine the development of a young girl and create low self-esteem, often body image issues or sexual issues around the daughter's developing sexuality, right? Where she can't trust her own feelings and her gut instincts. And she tends to conclude that the problem is with her. And she'll often feel defenseless against mom. Now, oftentimes, dads who are married to a narcissistic mother will not protect the daughters from the abuse, right? They often don't protect either daughters or sons from the abuse of the narcissistic mom. Or the dad may not see it, right? Because mom kind of keeps it hidden from him or she'll lie about it, right? And she'll, maybe if the daughter does say something to dad, mom's going to lie. And if the parents have decided, right? If the spouse of the narcissist have decided that they're not going to divorce for whatever reason, right? They're not, divorce isn't an option. Then the spouse of the narcissist is going to have to accept some of the realities that the narcissism has created, right? Which is not actually reality. It's the reality that the narcissist needs. And the spouse who's going to stay with the narcissist has to accept that reality as reality, right? So the dad may come to the kids and say, like, you've got to stop this, right? Even though maybe dad sees that mom is maybe out of control or mom got really abusive, whether that was verbally or physically or in whatever way, right? Dad's going to try to control the kids in order to keep the peace between him and the narcissist. So in this, right, a daughter doesn't learn to stand up for herself. She doesn't learn to advocate for her needs and often can be set up for abusive relationships in adulthood because those abusive relationships are familiar. So let's talk about for a minute the sons of narcissistic mothers, right? So sons will often be treated either as the golden child, the scapegoat, which is also kind of the term we use for the black sheep of the family, or they're the forgotten child, right? And it's often said that the golden child will become a narcissist themselves, right? All three of those roles are damaging, but oftentimes the golden child does not recognize the damage that's happening. So the golden child, you know, is going to recollect a, a golden childhood, right? And adolescence. They're going to look at that and say, my childhood was great. It was amazing, right? If you were to talk to one of the other siblings, they may have fallen into the invisible category or the scapegoat category. They're going to recall a different childhood, right? But they may agree that, yeah, like his childhood was great. So that child, that son, right, who's in the golden child category, he may have been treated like a prince, right, and then kind of this king. He will have been fed with messages that he's special, he's exceptional, um, he, may, he may have been given everything he wanted, 
And this is serving the grandiose projections of the mother, right? She's giving him everything she wants, but he's the recipient of that, right? And so oftentimes he does leave this, this very charmed childhood and adolescent and starts to think like either this is how my life needs to be and I expect that from people going forward or starts to believe I am better than everybody else. Especially, right, if they're siblings who he is being treated better than, he may conclude that like somehow they're flawed, somehow they're doing something wrong, but I'm not. So he will be given everything he wanted. He is likely to go into a profession that has a lot of power and control, right? A doctor, a lawyer, anything that makes mom proud. You know, he's also likely to have this trophy wife, picture-perfect children, house, a dog or two, maybe a boat on a lake, right? Now, behind the scenes, right, there may be this shadow life that maybe nobody knows about, right? Or maybe mom is told, like maybe the spouse tells the mom, like, hey, everything isn't so great, but mom is not going to believe that about her little boy, right? So maybe on the side, he's sleeping around, he may be a workaholic, he may have gambling problems, he may drink problematically, he may steal a little or is very dishonest, but mom isn't going to accept that about him, right? And she is still extremely proud of the son. Their son can do no wrong. The son is still in this golden spot, right? So the spouse and the children are kind of put in this compromising situation. Now, sometimes the golden child, right, may have more chaotic experience if the narcissistic parent isn't a high-functioning narcissist, right? Life may have been a little bit more chaotic, but they're still going to remember childhood as being one of the best times of their life. In early childhood, the narcissistic mother can more easily control her children, right? And maintain them in this state of dependence. And so mom is going to be this constant presence, often making decisions for them, kind of getting in all the nooks and crannies, right, of the child's life. And then when that societal expectation of son starts to shift away from mom, mom is going to have a really hard time. Son may feel a lot of guilt over kind of becoming more of an independent person and may actually never shift away from that. So I wanted to read this quote from uh, the book, The Wizard of Oz and Other Narcissists. The author is Eleanor Payson. And she writes, whatever unique wounding exists for you as the adult child of a narcissistic personality disordered parent, there will be some manifestation of difficulty in the form of compulsive behaviors, grandiose strivings, low self-esteem, excessive guilt and worry, anxiety, depression, loss of vitality, codependence issues, and the list goes on. These symptoms will be the clues that force your attention inward to recognize your need for healing. Also, John Bradshaw. Well, I also want to talk about, just for a minute, Pia Melody. Pia Melody does a lot of work around this abuse and codependency. So if you're looking for some healing, maybe you're recognizing that you're a codependent, right? The, the children of narcissistic parents have higher rates of both narcissism and codependency. And, and some of that depends on the role that they were assigned in the family or the role that they were given in the family. So... Pia Melody talks about the abuse that happens, right? And she says, when people mention child abuse, most people think of sexual or physical abuse, but there are many other ways a child can be abused and scarred for life. In her book, uh, Facing Codependence, she distinguishes five different types of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual. And she also makes a distinction between overt and covert abuse, saying that overt abuse is visible, while covert abuse is less obvious, it's sneaky and it's deniable. In the book, well, no, in some of John, I'm, I'm going to get to where John Bradshaw, a quote from John Bradshaw, who also did a lot of work with addiction. But I wanted to talk for a minute about shame versus shameless, right? And so narcissistic parents are shameless, right? They will not pick up. They may do things, right, that they should be ashamed of. The way that they parent, right? The ways that they fly into a fit of rage, right? Those are things that they should feel ashamed of themselves and work to make amends. But for the narcissistic parent, right, they are shameless. And so oftentimes what happens, right, with shame, shame is kind of this energy, right? And if the person who does the shameful things will not accept the shame, right, then there's this energy kind of in the air that oftentimes kids will just absorb, right? The kids kind of absorb that. And so parent is doing something that is shame 
they should be ashamed of, right? It's a shaming behavior. Um, But the kids pick it up, right? And the kids then think it's about them. And so the parent gets to be shameless, right? I don't pick up my own shame. I'm not responsible for my own shame. And I just give that to other people and they pick it up, right? And so kids are these energy absorbers and often they will pick up the shame that the parent won't and they think it's about themselves, right? And so often, especially for sons, this this came up in the research, right? That sons often carry a great deal of shame and that one of the biggest repressed feelings from sons of narcissistic parents or mothers particularly is shame. One of the deepest is the shame. In John Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, he writes, if our primary caregivers are shame-based, they will act shameless and pass their toxic shame onto us. There is no way to teach self-value if one does not value oneself. One of the devastating aspects of toxic shame is that it is multi-generational. The secret and hidden aspects of toxic shame from the wellsprings of its multi-generational life. Since it is kept hidden, it cannot be worked out. Families are as sick as their toxic shame secrets. Children need mirroring and echoing These come from their primary caregiver's eyes. Mirroring means that someone is there for them and reflects who they really are at any given moment of time. In the first three years of our life, each of us needed to be admired and taken seriously. We needed to be accepted for the very one we are. Having these mirroring needs met results in what Alice Miller calls our basic narcissistic supplies. When parents are shame-based and needy, they are unable to take over the mirroring narcissistic function for the child. Furthermore, the fact that the parents are shame-based is a clear signal that they never got their own narcissistic supplies. Such parents are adult children who are still in search of a parent or an object who will be totally available to them. For such parents, the most appropriate objects of narcissistic gratification are their own children. So just kind of breaking that down a little bit, right? Oftentimes, the narcissistic mom, the narcissistic dad, right? They often came from a narcissistic parent as well, right? They grew up in this narcissistic home. And so they are doing what was done for them. And they became the narcissistic child in the family. Maybe they were the golden child, whatever. Like they were the one that was groomed to become the continuing narcissist for the narcissistic parent. And so when we talk about, when he talks, when John Bradshaw talks about the narcissistic supply, right? I mean, if if we were to look at it, we don't really do this, right? We don't really call infants or toddlers narcissistic because it's age appropriate, right? But for the infant, for the child, the world revolves around them, right? And they're not giving anything to anybody else, right? They're only receiving. We don't label that as dysfunctional. We don't label that as narcissistic because it is age appropriate, right? They are completely dependent on another person and they don't have much to give, right? Now, healthy parents may look at and say, oh my gosh, it was such a hard day. And then my child fell asleep and I checked in on them and they were sleeping and it made everything worth it, right? But actually the child's not giving you that, right? You're grappling with the meaning and you're bringing meaning to hardship, right? But that's because you can do that and you understand that the child isn't going to be giving you a whole lot, right? They may smile at you. They may be cute one day, but that's more about the child than it is them kind of giving us something. Now, the older that that, you know, young child grows, they might be giving some things, right? I drew you a picture or I I came and just gave you a hug and said, I love you, right? And that's great. But again, we're not expecting our child to give a whole lot to us. But for the parent who you know, was raised by a narcissistic parent themselves, right? They weren't given that full attention, right? That narcissistic supply of the world is all about me and you have to be totally tuned into me. That didn't happen for them, right? Because their parent was narcissistic. So when they grow up and have children, they think, aha, now this child can give everything to me that I didn't get from my own parent, right? except it's not age appropriate, right? It's not age appropriate at 30 years old or at 40 years old to have everybody giving everything to you and the world revolving around you, right? And so that comes from that narcissistic wounding that they may have had as an infant themselves, but they haven't healed that, right? And I think that's the invitation when we start to recognize 
the narcissistic dysfunction that may have existed in our family, right? We've lifted the veil of denial that keeps most children away from recovery, right? Even in adulthood, they don't move into recovery because it's so hard to lift that veil of denial. And, and I think we have to be sensitive, right? As that veil is being lifted and we're starting to see actually the dysfunction behind what we thought was this perfect family, right? And, and maybe even as the golden child to realize that being a golden child was detrimental, right? Like I couldn't necessarily be myself. I had to be what my parent wanted me to be. So there's not that individuality, right? I may expect the world to treat me as better than, and that that's actually very harmful, right? For the scapegoat, they have to start to look at and see I wasn't the bad person in all of this, right? I was targeted or maybe a lot got projected onto me and I carried the shame of the family, but that wasn't about me, right? And then for the invisible child, often they're the ones who flees, right? They go away. Like I said, they may have more um, chance at actually having a healthy life for themselves and and being their own individual, right? Because some of that wasn't projected onto them. They were just kind of ignored and neglected, but neglect is its own form of abuse. And so they're also going to have to deal with the trauma of being the invisible child. So I hope this answered some of the questions that I've gotten from the episodes I've done on narcissism. I think there's some great questions. I'm happy to have more. And like I said, I'm going to do one more episode just kind of talking about personality disorders in general. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen. Amen.